Howdy there, folks. Dex in the Black Pants Legion here. I am running solo today, running solo on the podcast because I wanted to catch up on some Battletech questions. And while I had let questions in the past kind of guide a few podcasts that were a little less uh, scripted and a little more freeform, I've decided to actually spend some time addressing this backlog of questions because some people have asked quite a few. So, let's get into that. Derek Luderis writes, Hey BPL, found your channel through the Battletech videos, really fell in love with the rest of the content from the Legion, was doing 160th scale Battletech in Kirita, all of the shitposting on Periphery got me on Sarna, and read up on those nations. I'm abandoning the space weebs for the Torians. Problem is, Sarna only has 10 different mechs listed for them. Being a 30k hobbyist, I always prefer to model and play within established lore. Any way to reasonably expand on this. P.S. Okay to use my name. Alright. Derek, um, I would recommend going to the Master Unit List. Google Battletech Master Unit List. I would recommend digging on Sarna and finding any handbooks you can related to any faction you can. Because those handbooks are going to have not only the history and lore, so you can kind of get in the headspace of who you're playing. You'll know their history, you'll know their different units, their different doctrines, how they fight. But also you'll be able to see unit composition, what kind of mechs they favor, and so on. Now, some of the periphery nations, even though the Torians are really more a successor state in terms of power, you're going to have a lot, and I do mean a lot, of interesting uh, options because they may only have so many indigenous designs or that which is produced within their borders, but they're going to have a lot of stuff that's just kind of floated out there from the collapse of Star League and as well the Succession Wars era. So the Colombian trade as it were, uh, kind of results in a lot of, or the Colombian exchange of Battletech kind of results in uh, technology going far and wide. So you see a lot of different things fade through, but master unit list and then any handbooks on the Torian Concordat. If you go into Sarna and you read up on any of the nations and scroll to the bottom, you'll see the source. You'll see the source materials and references. And that is going to point you where that comes from, and that is the next step to doing more research. So I would recommend going down those avenues and probably trying to find out a little bit more. But if you get stuck again, uh, don't be afraid to ask, and I'll see what I can do for you. But I always encourage people to do their own research because it's much more rewarding. That and you can get in the habit of good research practices and continue to dig up fun stuff. So best of luck. I like the fact that someone's playing the periphery nowadays rather than one of the four successor houses or the weird assholes uh, from deep beyond the deep, deep periphery who kind of believe in some weird stuff. Next, dear Tex, well, let me have a sip of my coffee. Mmm, hot. Dear Tex, first of all, as an equally old or older, Carter was still in office when I was born. Grognard, I really appreciate the content you and the BPL have been putting out. I largely visit your channel for the Battletech content, but I've dabbled in some of the other stuff and found it as enjoyable. I first got into your content because there was a considerable lack of quality Battletech content on YouTube. Most of what I found were either reviews of the tabletop game itself, or another review of one of the MechWarrior games is told by some feeble-minded donkey with zero awareness of the lore or setting. Someone who put out cerebral, well-thought-out material about the lore and game in general, and its fan base, I agree we are among the most welcoming of the large fan bases out there, was a welcome change of pace. I thank you and the rest of the Legion for the time, love, and care you put into each episode. I lament that there isn't more of it, but shouldn't that always be the way we feel about our favorite content? Quality takes time. Now on to the questions. In this case, all directed to tax. 1. What is your opinion about LAMs? Game-breaking, novelty, stupid. Would you consider covering these on future tax talks? Uh, 
LAMs are something I don't like. I see it as them just trying to put Transformers in the game, more or less. They fill a really weird niche in tabletop, and they're really fragile. If you can use them well, they work okay, but there's a much better way to use mechs, I think, or combined arms. I find that one thing that tries to do many things, one unit that tries to cover all bases is going to be very weak compared to using a combined arms tactic of different units all excelling in their one thing. So having the jack of all trades in any battlefield scenario is not usually as great as using combined arms to its uh, highest point. As far as covering it in a future Tanks Talks, maybe, because they were a big part of the lore at one point, but they I, I just really don't like them at all. I I think, again, it's it's just trying to capitalize, uh, one, on the weebs out there, trying to, trying to get that anime money by saying, you know, we have robots that transform into planes. But, um... I, I, I think as far as the tone of the universe, they don't quite fit, and there's a reason why there's not a lot of them. I, I think they're, across the board, not all that great. And if I do cover them, it'll be much later. Two, your Battletech playthroughs were great, even the MWO stuff shit came. Would you consider doing some playthroughs of older Battletech MechWarrior games? I'd especially love to see you tackle Crescent Hawk's Revenge or the two Mech Commander games. Mega Mech, though slower paced, would be interesting to see with your commentary. Um, I am working on some of those older games. Which and when, I will not say. But yeah, that, that is on my radar, so worry not. Three... I know how I would have handled the timeline post-Civil War, but if you could have written the Jihad and Dark Age era time in your own way, what would you have done different? Well, that is a much more difficult thing, because given the constraints, we have to understand that we can't really write it our way. They were told they have to move the storyline forward, and they have to do it quickly. And they did it in the best way they could with those time constraints. I mean, it's one of those things where you don't... It's really hard to put yourself in the seat of a writer being told on a deadline, you have to move the story forward this much, you cannot have any of these characters alive to do any of these things, and you have to kind of end all of these storylines, and so it becomes a rock's fall, everyone dies. If I would have written it with those constraints, it would have been probably not all that dissimilar. But if I had to write it with no constraints, if you're assuming a perfect world, um, I, I think what I would have done is have the Word of Blake Jihad... Um, hmm. <clears throat> Sorry, got a little bit of a cold here. Having a, having a cup of coffee again. Um, what I would have done is had the Word of Blank Jihad be this really slow, labyrinthine conspiracy where it doesn't even go hot. It's just behind the scenes. It becomes this huge spy game where Comstar slowly starts pitting all of the great houses against each other and slowly starts pitting all of these minor events or putting all of these minor events in motion in order to rebuild Star League, to create a second Star League with them at the center. So I would think I would see them like reaching out to clanners for one, and they would be reaching out to clanners and trying to stoke the true parts of their history and kind of erasing or sidelining or at least showing them evidence the false parts of their history were in fact revisionism and slowly trying to show them that you can be the sword to protect the inner sphere. You are the SLDF. And try, try to, you know, get them to abandon the, uh, the weirder parts of their culture and get them to kind of remember that glorious cause, that banner they waved, and the, that which they swore to defend and kind of stoke those fires. And I would see that Comstar 1 slowly tries to change the clans back into the SLDF while weakening all the great houses. And then I would have had an SLDF 2 era where that happens. But it takes like 30, 40 fucking years. 
So you would have, you know, clans that buy into it by saying, well, that's not all that dissimilar from the, the warden ideology. And they have to purge the the crusader element. Like they, they have a war of reaving, but I guess a little earlier. And um, then the next step is to bring the great houses in line with the new SLDF. And uh, they, they have to find an heir, you know, an heir of Kerensky or even hell. I, I would have like one of the ancient heirs, Cameron, uh, reemerge. Say the uh, Trippets incident really did go out and protect a Cameron house secretly somewhere in the deep, deep periphery. And they reemerge. And that could be a whole new thing where you have portions of the SLDF being pro-Cameron restoration and portions of this new SLDF being, no, it must be a republic. We cannot restore that old way, the cycles of destruction. And so you would have uh, kind of a uh, SLDF civil war part two, which would be kind of interesting. And I, I would say that whole word of Blake thing would be to bring home this prophecy that there will be another SLDF and they must rebuild it. Um, Dark Age, I'm not really up on uh, as far as that goes, but I, I, I like my headcanon a little better, but that's just my opinion. I don't write this lore, so. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the idea of there being a grand conspiracy to bring about this giant sort of new SLDF in, in my head. As I said, you, you have Comstar slowly trying to reenact this word of Blake, saying Jerome Blake said that they would return. Jerome Blake said that there will be another SLDF, and we must follow the ancient directive of our order to fulfill Kerensky's final order, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you have them slowly machinate that by weakening the great houses and turning the clans into a new SLDF that protects the sphere and then purging, as I said, all of those elements. So... I, th I think that would be really interesting, again, with like a uh, inner house warfare where you have some of the houses joining this pro-New Cameron line idea and some of the houses working against that pro-Cameron line. And you you would have a wonderful like War of the Roses where it's a Yorkist versus the House of Lancaster. And uh, they're, except it's, you know, pro and anti-Cameron or something like that. I mean, there would be a lot of intrigue. It'd be a Cold War that slowly boils up after the FedCom Civil War with all the houses kind of a little bloodied at this point. So, yeah, that would be my opinion. And then last question he asks, what is your everyday carry? I've heard Glock mention, but I'm always interested to hear what other people carry. And then parentheses, Brett, a PX4 for me. Um, If... I were to EDC and it would be standardized. It's either Glock 17 with the mods that I've put in it or a Smith & Wesson 586. I would say those are both about equally reliable and that's what I want in a gun. I want reliable. Um, I, I tend to have an issue with guns to where, um, in, in my experience in the past gunsmithing, if, if I see a way they can fail that is catastrophic and unexpected, I tend not to carry them. It, it sounds a little goofy, but I get kind of a feeling of fat juju about a gun where I can go, ooh, this one little thing goes wrong, and then it looks fine, but it won't work. Um, a good example of that is I brought a C or I bought a uh, CC75 B Omega with the Omega trigger package, and from the factory the trigger was uh, faulty, so it went dead in one magazine. And so I'm really having issues with that right now, and that's not a gun I would ever feel safe carrying for a defensive or concealment use. And they apologized the factory placed the uh, trigger and the disconnector and quite a few springs, but still, um, it makes me really think. Thing hard about the design, but I mean, it could have been a small QC slip. I only saw the worst, but trying to be mindful of that. Um, and thank you for your kind words at the preamble, Jeremy. Um, and thank you for the questions. So, moving on. Good morning, BPO. I hope everyone is doing well during these trying times. Thank you for responding to my previous question, as it has given me more direction for my research in the Succession Wars and production of Battle Max. Here is my question. Where would you say is the proper beginning of the Battletech story? I've read the general metaplot of the Inner Sphere at large, but it's difficult to figure out where to tell people, particularly new players, where to begin. Should I have people start with the invention of the KF drive? 
the founding of Star League, the Ameri-Civil War, or during the period of decision at Thunder Rift, everything about history is often predicated and precipitated by the actions and sins of what happened prior, so it's difficult to point to a precise point of reference for new players to really begin their own research. Can you provide some insight into this question? Thank you for your time. Respectfully, Curtis Thompson. All right, well, Curtis, or Mr. Thompson, if you prefer. <clears throat> the uh, in, in history, we call these framing dates. Um, when, when you try to frame a history, you have to look at what's relevant. So if I said, hey, um, let's read about Lord of the Rings, you can read Lord of the Rings without reading The Cimmerillion or The Hobbit, though The Hobbit would be a lot more useful to frame The Lord of the Rings than The Cimmerillion. Broad history is not going to help new players, and I think that what you should do is if new players are interested and you're kind of coaching them through this, I would recommend people look at the Ameri-Civil War I, I think that frames a lot, and I'm very glad I covered that when I did. The Ameri-Civil War is a primer for not only why there is no Star League anymore, but why the Great Houses are dicks and why nobody can get along. And it's one of those branching nexus points. Because of that, we get the clans. Because of that, we get uh, independent periphery. Because of that, there is no Star League. Because of that, we get Comstar. But... Because of that, we get the MRBC, we get the C-Bill, we get all the great houses, we get a lack of stabilization, and we get four succession wars. And that one point is a beautiful starting point. If you go all the way back to, you know, the Terran hegemony and the KF drive and all of that, that's, that's just not going to be helpful to players. It's nice fluff to know. I intend to cover all that at some point, even the Terran Alliance, I intend to cover all of that at some point. But um, it's, it's one of those things where it's nice to know, but it really doesn't impact the world. FTL is FTL, and it's, it's one of those things where you look at uh, settings like Star Wars, which is more space opera, but you look at settings like Star Wars, and you look at something as important as an FTL drive, and it was invented so long prior to the start of the universe, nobody knows who invented it. It's just there. FTL is FTL. It's, it's hyperspace. It goes. You jump, you're there. You jump, you're there. It's no big deal. So in Battletech, you have to ask yourself, would a player or even a person in this setting know it? Well, maybe you or I would because we're very you know, inquisitive uh, people. But does it impact the setting? Well, yeah, FTL impacts the setting, but the history of it doesn't. So I, I would say the Ameri-Civil War and the Four Succession Wars are a great framing point because it shows the collapse of the old empire and the creation of the new power. So it's kind of like the collapse of the Roman Empire. And then the continuation of the Byzantine being useful as primers for uh, Middle Ages Europe or any of the states that start rising out of that, like the Holy Roman Empire, even though it really wasn't an empire and certainly wasn't Roman. But, I mean, as a historian, you just have to look for your framing dates, which influences which most directly, and go from there. So thank you, Curtis. Uh, next question. Hello, I've been trying to understand what factors influence the design of MechWarrior costumes... Oh, good luck with that. When I see old battle tank books, I do not see anything that is very practical. As far as I can think of, a costume should be designed to meet some requirements like environment, gravity, impacts, required pilot mobility. What do you think would be the most common requirement if you are a mech warrior? What would be the specs you would pick if you were one? Okay, that's one question. Um, I, I would say that... Ideally, you want something that is obvious. Well, okay, first thing, I have to say, a lot of the shit in the 80s and that art, I think, was just people fucking drawing, man. I, I think it was just people drawing crazy fun stuff. Like, that's all they wanted to do was just draw some cool fucking art. They didn't give a fuck. They, they, didn't, they didn't think about it. They, they, didn't, they didn't really think about practicality. It was just, what's cool? What's cool, what's fun, and that's it. it. It's just 
style over substance at that point. It's straight up 1980s. You got like fucking rocker hair and fishnets and whatever the fuck else. And, you know, um, it's it's very much why we did the text talks battle tech art with George Ledoux and stuff. We're all just laughing because it just shows the zany side of it. It is style over substance. Um, so d don't think of any of that as any sort of useful primer. Um, so uh, next question, though, he says, what would be the most common requirement if you were a mech warrior? Something sealed against hostile atmospheres, something that is impact resistant, something that helps uh, circulate heat, and something with a uh, tracking sensor in it for when you punch out. And it's probably some small survival kit, you know, taped to your leg that contains a gun and some rations and a medical kit and some drugs. So, yeah, that is that is probably it. Something that is that is tough something that would survive getting ejected, and something that will protect against the environment. That is probably it. Um, and then he goes on to ask, describe the garments and requirements for these garments if you use any as a mech warrior. Shirts, vests, jackets, pants, jumpsuits, shoes, hats, accessories, electronics attached to garments, neural helmet, life support elements. Think basically what you're asking is, how would I design a mech warrior uniform? And I'm thinking spacesuit. To be honest, though, some sort of future spacesuit that is not so balloony and hard to control when pressurized, but something maybe like a U-2 suit like they used for um, going up in the U-2 spy plane or the SR-71 suit. Something that's, you know, durable, protects, um, can absolutely take low-pressure environments and, uh, you know, is self-sealed with some cooling apparatus. I, I think that that's absolutely it. So thank you for asking. Pablo Luna wrote that one. All right, let's see. Hey, thank you for your time. I was mainly wondering if you knew any literature regarding a Battletech RPG. It's something I've been interested in and to try with all this extra time on my hands, I'd like to swing it. I know you have limited time and I don't expect you to be any kind of Discord regular, but I thought it would be interesting. Most of my close friends don't have any real history in Battletech, but a lot in Dungeons and Dragons. So I thought the best way to introduce them to the setting would be this kind of medium. TLDR, whiskey-fueled Battletech RPG for weird hairy nerds, just need some good advice on a system to be able to translate that. Signed, Joker Sticks 66. Alright, um, there is a Battletech RPG, and if you want to know how that is, I would recommend you go to Mr. Welch's Mad Musings. Just Google Mr. Welch's Mad Musings or uh, Mr. Welch on YouTube. He's a pal of mine, and he has a YouTube channel, and he does RPG reviews that are hugely in-depth. But there is a Battletech RPG called The Time of War, and it's not great, but it does work. It does need some homebrewing. But... Never be afraid to just homebrew your own settings. Use GURPS or use Savage Worlds or use D100 or use any system and just cross out everything that's lore specific to that setting and replace it with Battletech. I mean, there's a time of war, but I don't see why you wouldn't be able to make D&D 5th Edition work for Battletech. I mean, it's going to be a lot of homebrewing, but fuck it. If you've got time on your hands, you can make it your own. And ask what your players want out of a game, because that is the biggest mistake a DM makes, I find, is, is trying to tell the story without the player's input or say so. You really, really, really need to ask what they want out of the game, and then try to work with them on that, or at least find out if you're compatible, because sometimes as a DM, you'll have an idea for story, or you'll want to run a module, you'll go by the big fat book of whatever, and you say, I'm going to run this. And the players have no interest in railroading through something like that. They, they want to create their own story. They want something more freeform. Or you will find a group that wants to play, you know, tell Temple of Elemental Evil or Journey to Barrier Peaks. Or they want something cinematic that is a little more on the rails. And if you say, no, I'm just kind of a freeform, make it up DM, you'll, you'll, these people will stop showing up because they want that other experience. So communication is everything. All right, next up, Killer Turd 117, Tech Simpy Who Best Girl. I, I don't know. I, I don't understand half the words you just said. Um, I don't date often. It, it's been some time. I, I find that I'm just not good for a company or relationships. So, kind of live a solitary life. 
um, in, in that respect. And I, I don't find myself often um, obsessing or chasing or experience any sort of want in that regard. Don't know what that is, but I, it seems to be fine. Josh R., what is your favorite Battletech novel? Uh, shit by Blaine Pardo, and then a close second would be stuff by Stackpole. I, I like Blaine. I like, um, I, I do like his showing of how the smoke jaguars were betrayed from within, and he showed a really gritty side to Battletech. I, re I really like, um, God, what is it? Is it Honor? No, it's, um, Oh, God, I hold on. I have a Google. I don't have to try to remember everything off the top of my head when I've had no sleep. I, I can just find it. Ha, ha, ha. But, yeah. Um, the, the thing is, is that Blaine is a true crime writer. And he's a very accomplished true crime writer. And he knows a lot. I do know that he knows a lot about human... Uh, human interaction and the darkness of the human heart from writing true crime for so often. So his, his other books do have that kind of fucked up quality to him where you start to see, you know, the really dark side of stuff. And he, he does that well. And I, I think a lot of these universes aren't well thought out in respect of believable uh, or believability, you know, just they, they're lacking that human element. Um, but yeah, Exodus Road was the one I was thinking of. I remember reading that in high school. Um, and then his latest one, Forever, Forever Faithful, is pretty good. But he uh, he really captures that kind of dark element to things. He he makes stuff gritty. But keep in mind, he also wrote the Clan Wolf source book or large parts of it. So he's the guy who actually shows how the clans are a lot darker than you think. And how things are a lot darker than you think. He he shows a really grisly side to stuff. He shows that there is hidden histories. He shows that people are maybe not as noble as you think they are. Maybe they're a little bit crazy. And I've been lucky enough to have some time with him, talk with him. Um, at some point, I, I do intend to actually sit down and speak with him and maybe podcast with him and talk about um, universes and what have you in terms of writing good and writing bad in terms of character interaction because he has that down but I, I think that comes from his experience with um, writing a lot about true crime, investigating the causes of all of these crazy shit in the world and I think that's fascinating uh, Josh Benson asks thanks for the update what do you think of the most interesting actions in Battletech involving conventional forces, i.e. AFVs and infantry? I would say probably the best one, the best example, was that crazy fight uh, over the throne room where you have the Blackwatch-like guys jumping in and trying to kill Amaris that are, like, cutting through the roof and gutting, you know, his guards and stuff. Like, it's crazy, crazy last-minute action because they know that sooner or later reinforcements are coming in and they're going to fucking murder everybody so it's it, stuff like that is really cool the commando operations and there's a lot of really neat commando operations that go on in the Battletech universe the the small scale commando stuff there was some more during Operation Bulldog and uh, out on the Exodus Road um, that were pretty interesting to read about and then even more in the American Civil War where you have these huge fucking infantry slugouts in cities and you see these huge sieges that just last forever. And then there's um, the final fight on Terra is kind of a Stalingrad almost. So a lot of that stuff feels grisly and real. It's not quite like 40K where it's just like, you know, Large McBig Huge with his enormous pauldrons walks in and kills everyone with his laser sword. It, it has a very grim sort of feeling and realistic as well and I, I think that's pretty cool uh, CJ asks any experience with car wars I like playing it but I can't get anyone else to do so I hate to say this CJ but no I have no experience so chalk one more on that Captain Hazelwood asks strangest battle mag design and why the charger and that's getting its own episode I think that's one of the strangest and, and I'm discounting all of the Dark Age stuff and Republic of the Sphere stuff later on where I think mech design went out the window because people came in to design mechs that 
really had no bearing on the universe whatsoever. It, it was just, well, what if we make a 120-ton battle mech? What if we make a 130-ton battle mech? And they just build them bigger. But the problem is, is from the design philosophy, when you weigh that against other stuff in Battletech, you go, well, wait a second. All the drop sizes have been standardized for so long it doesn't make sense to make something that won't fit in drop gantry, won't fit in a dropship, and is also less mobile than anything we've already got. It's kind of like railroad gauge when you think about it. The reason we don't build bigger trains is because we have a limit of railroad gauge. We'd have to build bigger railroads or wider tracks or thinner tracks or tougher tracks. So you build the biggest train you can to fit through the tunnels you've got and to ride on the rail you've got. Well, that's infrastructure. Same with Battletech. Dropships are built to standardized sizes with standardized drop gantries, standardized doors, and all that other stuff. So when someone comes along who's not kind of got that mindset, they come into the setting and they go, oh, what if it's 120, 130, 140, 150 tons? And they don't realize, one, mobility goes out the window. Two, how are you going to get it to the war zone? And three, what purpose does it solve that something can't do cheaper or easier? Um, Sons of Lorgar asks, Tex, what was the most interesting, rewarding, strange job you got commissioned to do when working as a gunsmith? Now, okay, I, I have to say this. I am I was a apprentice gunsmith. I did a lot of gunsmithing. It was a side job. I was young. I am not a gun expert. I'm not a gun expert. I do not want people thinking I'm a de facto gun expert. I don't want people believing that I was the greatest gun guy of all time. I don't want people thinking I'm good and glorious and uberalis when it comes to guns. I have my opinions on them. I have my experience with them. But um, I am in no means a master, nor am I an expert. And I, I think whenever someone says they're a gun expert or you know an authority on that, you should probably go the other way. Just just walk away. Um, because there's there's a lot to self-educate on. But um, the most interesting and rewarding job, uh, I had a guy who discovered a bunch of guns his dad had. And they were, they were pretty much ruined. Or he thought they were ruined. He was, he was very, very sad about it. He'd found them, they'd been put in oil cloth, and they'd been put in an attic that had been a little damp, and they had a lot of rust on them. And so I spent a lot of time taking these things apart very carefully and then removing as best I could a lot of the, uh, the rust very deliberately, very slowly. And as it turns out, they had a lot of patina on them, but the rust wasn't terrible. There, there were some parts on the inside that did need replacing. Um, a lot of springs had just gone bad, and some parts did need absolute replacing because I think by the time he'd put them in the oil wrapping, these guns were already on the verge of breaking and you know, being all seized up and uh, on positions because of ruined, broken springs and what have you. It, you know, it, it, it resulted in a gun that was not really safe, especially when you head safe it or headspace it and, you know, you're uh you you drop a uh you drop a go no go gauge on it and it like takes both of them and you're like, Oh no. Oh no. But yeah, um restoring those to working order at least to kinda keeping some of the patina, um keeping some of the wood patina, keeping some of the um metal patina and handing it back to him, it, the the joy on the guy's face was pretty amazing because he's like, "This is how I remembered him as a kid. This is how I remembered him as a kid," and that that um that made him really happy. And I, I think that was very special, very special to do. Even though it wasn't the most cool thing, even though it wasn't the most crazy thing, even though it wasn't the most custom awesome thing, um, it was special. And and he really truly thank me deeply so I um I appreciate that next question uh, dear text of the Black Pants Legion as a lover of military technology and a bit of a Mac fan I find myself beset by a conflict of reason and passion oh this will be good how is it the Battle Mac of Battle Tech came to be? Military technological projections predict the future of fully autonomous defense systems carried out by weaponry designed to be smaller, faster, stealthier, and more versatile than what we 
presently deploy in modern warfare with a heavy emphasis on detection and damage mitigation achieved by longer range tactical equipment. In our modern day, the likelihood of Mecca being fielded in the battlefields of the future seems laughably counterintuitive and hideously impractical compared to our current projection of future warfare models. Does Battletech provide lore as to a technological or economic deviation that revolutionized military doctrine so radically the Battletech platform has become an incredibly viable tactical solution? Digging into the history of the Machion Sarna has unearthed diddly squat as to the reason behind the sudden shift in weapons development that led to the design and mass production of the battle mech in favor of every other practical technological solution beyond big stompy robot kill good. Comparing the battle mech to their closest real world contemporary leaves me drawing a correlation between the battle mech and the battleship. Battleships were completely phased out of military consideration following the advent of the airplane and aircraft carrier capital warship due to production costs achieving a far greater economy of tactical applications and the sortie ratios of the aircraft carrier. Does Battletech explain how why military doctrine de-evolved so drastically as to include their iconic yet obsolete tactical reiteration of the battleship? And if not, how would you headcanon the rise of the battle mech as a practical weapons, mobile weapons platform in future warfare? Apologies for the long-winded question. Vile slanders, parentheses, it's a pseudonym. I was hoping that wasn't a real name. Um, okay. I, I'm going to say this. This was written in the 80s. It was style over substance, and then slowly they tried to normalize it. It feels a little off sense. And yes, I agree. The, the future of warfare is going to be kind of boring. It'll be like a drone going in and shooting a laser at something and then leaving. It will be precise. It will be low casualty, and it will be super high intensity very briefly. So you'll see this continual brush war status of the world, as Thomas Barnett kind of put it where he's talking about the core and the gap and UN security priorities. Um, and his lectures are very interesting. But if you want to try to rationalize it, I can't say much at this point because I intend to cover exactly what you're talking about, exactly what you're talking about in the Mackie video. Because the story of the Mackie is the story of the military-industrial complex. And I can't say more at this point, but you've lifted the carpet and you've seen the dirt. That's all I'll say. So, you asked the right question, but the answer will have to wait, if that's okay. But thank you for it. It's, it was well thought out. Next question. Text Battletech Hawaiian shirts, buy or no buy, thanks Tabor. Um, I guess, where are they selling Battletech Hawaiian shirts? That sounds comfy. Uh, Fredwick Steel Badger says... The podcast is great. It feels like when I live near my primary friends and sitting around and shooting the shit. One, he misses Star Trek. Well, I do too. That was fucking awesome. If you've not seen the Star Trek over on the Courtesy Flush, which is on my main channel, you go over to the right and you can see the channels I linked, or just Googling the Courtesy Flush Star Trek on uh, YouTube, and I've put it on the community page a hundred times. There's a hundred ways to find it. Even on the Patreon, I, I link it all the time. I've been trying to get that information out there. Um, but the Star Trek is an awesome fucking playthrough, and we're actually going to take the audio of the Star Trek, and we are going to put it on this podcast. We are going to put all the episodes up there just so people can listen to it. And, you know, we can preserve it in another way, away from, like, YouTube's sort of fuckery where they just make shit disappear and people can't see it. Because I think Star Trek is up there with any other RPG I've ever read or listened to or watched. I, I think that that was just as good of a game. And I think Mike did a hell of a job, not only just adding sound effects and everything else. But, yeah, this is pretty good. If you had to pine... Oh, wait, next question. I want the Wendy's Cyberpunk game so bad. I'm not sure if you do, but Goat will probably run it anyways. Um, if you had to pilot an LAM, which would you pick? None. Did you ever play Kingdom of Cross? No. How do you feel about the FN57? I think they're a gimmicky gun with a terrible trigger, and I think Ruger made a better gun, even though I don't love Ruger. I, I think that the Ruger 5.7, or 57 as they call it, is ten times the gun for half the money. And I think FN is starting to realize they overcharge for 
what are mediocre products of late, um, though they're cooler products they've stopped making. So I, I think that FN really needs to chin up because their, you know, rifles are really not worth that money. And I, I think the FN 5.7 is a gun that is maybe worth half its listed price, especially with as bad a trigger as it has. Um, next question. Oh, and he says also, thank you for helping me keep saying the last few months. Dude, you're helping me keep saying. I have something to do in my spare time, which is just shitpost, which is what you're listening to now. Oh. Hello, Text the Black Pants Legion. I just finished listening to the latest podcast. Three nerds talking about life, movies, and viewer inquiries. I have a comment about the Canadian bacon that hot dog guy, crow, parentheses, brought up on pizza. As a Canadian, I can tell you that it does not exist. We have bacon, which comes in strips and is usually really fatty and greasy and very smoky. I can only assume you meant pea meal bacon, which is a cut of bank bacon cured in brine coated with pea meal or cornmeal now, and no smoke. It is usually sold in circles or as small hand-sized hams. If it is not, I have no clue what you are talking about, and it is an American lie, like American cheese, parentheses, orange solidified cheese whiz that is put on burgers, in parentheses. Sorry for the little rant, but you don't need to put this on the podcast, too late, but you may want to put this onto the hot dog guy. Yeah, Canadian bacon is what we call, I think, what you call that pea meal bacon. I think it's the little circular bits of bacon. I, th I think that's what that is. It's just here in the States, they call it Canadian bacon. Colin Barker wrote that. So Canadians, tell Colin he represented your country. Uh, he, threw up, he threw up his fucking guns. He was ready to brawl. He was, he was like, get strapped or get clapped. He was ready to throw down over, uh, you know, Canadian bacon. So, goddamn. Little Gravitas writes to me. One, who would win in a fight between Butt-Bot and the reanimated corpse of Richard Nixon? Butt-Bot. Two, why are mechs always bipedal? Surely four or six legs would be more stable. They are not always bipedal, and I will cover that in the future. Three, why does Tex hate land air mechs so much? Did one touch him in his special place when he was a child? Well, the reason I hate land air mechs is I see them as a compromise that makes no sense in a weapon platform that is already ridiculous. So, it's, it's kind of like when you're a kid... And you look at the toys on TV commercials and it will be like, oh, and it shoots water and it flies and it da da da. It's just all of these things that are a riot of sensation, but they, they don't meld together to do any one thing well. Um, Land air mechs are the Swiss army knife of mechs. And that, you know, it, if you can have a Swiss army knife or as I have on my desk here, a Leatherman. This Leatherman has a lot of tools on it that are actually useful as a blade that's sharp, as a screwdriver, it has a bottle opener, it has a file, it has pliers. This is useful. A Swiss Army knife is not because it has all of the approximation of multi-tool use, but it has a blade that is soft and doesn't keep an edge. It has tweezers that fall out of it. It has a toothpick you should never use and it has little saw blades that will blunt within two or three strokes. So the problem is, is that one of these is a tool, and the other is a simulacrum of a tool. One of these has use, and the other is a compromise that gives the appearance of usefulness. And I don't like it. Four, who in the BLP, I think you mean BPL, dresses the most like Parker Lewis from the TV show Parker Lewis Can't Lose? I've never seen it. I couldn't tell you. And five, what are the best toppings for nachos? Best question for last, I say. Uh, meat, cheese, guacamole. More cheese. Kind of split on sour cream. I think it needs like a little bit. Not a lot, just a little schmear. Um, not a fan of olives on them. I think olives is cheating. I think olives is right out. And pico, pico de gallo, Definitely. All right, next, text two questions. Text two questions? Wow, I thought I'd type bad sometimes. Jesus Christ. Probably give those people at Grammarly a heart attack. Sorry, I don't mean to bust on your question. Let's see. One, you seem to have a lot of hate for all the attention Space Station 13 has gotten over the years from mainstream creators. Why so? It seems to be more popular now than ever. Forgive me for asking, but I don't see the problem. Can you shed some light on it? Okay, here's the way I put, put this, and I, I've, I've said this many times, it's probably a very tired comparison, 
But imagine you have a restaurant you go to, like a little local diner, nothing special, nothing really special to the outside world. It's largely undiscovered. And they make a great cup of coffee that's never burned, it's never watered down, it's just hot, fresh, good cup of coffee. They make your omelet or your eggs or your bacon the way you like. You know, that crispy bacon, fluffy eggs, everything's good. You can go from walking in to sitting down to getting your food in five minutes. Service is great. Everyone's friendly. If you want to talk, people are there to talk. If you don't want to talk, people leave you alone. You can go in there and read a book and drink a cup of coffee if you like. Or you can just enjoy the experience. And everything's flavorful. It's not special. It's not trying to be anything different. But it is a bit of zen, that little detachment uh, from the hectic day-to-day life. And then one day, Guy Fieri walks in from diners, drive-ins, and dives and... In an over-the-top manner, he goes behind and starts screaming about how this is Flavored Town and that's Flavored Town, and he's holding up the different things to the camera and jamming shit in his pie hole and between his frosted tips and loud shirt. He screams about how great everything is and how everyone needs to come see it because it's Flavored Town. And from that exposure, that influencer then brings a horde to your little restaurant. So the day after it airs, you find you can't get in. Same with the day after that. Same with the day after that. So you decide to walk away and let it die down for a time. And a month goes by and you go back and you find out, one, they're invitation only, two, the lines around the block, and three, the menu has changed. What used to be a reasonable breakfast menu is now avocado toast and Instagram favorites. You find that they don't serve coffee, but they serve soy latte chai or some other abomination of a beverage. You find that everything's vegan or vegetarian or has just changed to follow another fad. The whole front counter, which was once people that were regulars, people you could talk to, people you knew from coming there once a week, the mailman, the sheriff, the town marshal, the mayor... All the people you knew and talked with could catch up on and feel the pulse of the community. They're all gone. They can't afford to eat there anymore. Or they've been chased off by the crowd. Or that they've turned the whole counter service into influencers only for their Instagram accounts. And you find that that little peaceful place you had is now gone or changed. It's packed. It's more popular now than ever. There's more now than ever. There's plenty. There's plenty there now. And the business is succeeding, yes. But it's changed. And the identity that it once had is now gone. That's the beef I had with it. If that makes any sense. The issue... I find is that it drew a lot of people in who changed the environment. And I'm not sure whether for the better or worse, but change. It's nice seeing some of the on the verge of being dead servers suddenly pop up and do better. I think that's great. But it's also sad to see some of the servers that used to be rather enjoyable suddenly turn into a 60 to 90 kids in a round running around just being shitlers and, uh, you know, being edgy kids because they were introduced to the game to do exactly that. And Of course, it's very easy for a server to ban one or two malcontents, but when you have a whole server full of people who think that's the established norm and changes the environment to reflect that, Some have done well through this. Some have done really well, and it's brought in a lot of new blood that they desperately needed, so it wasn't the same five grognards, but some of these servers, it more or less killed the core of them. All of the old guard left because, well, I suppose they were replaced. I find it to be something that has provoked a lot of emotions over time, I find that 
initially I was very mad at it and I was very bitter at it because I was watching what I loved and enjoyed my happy little Zen thing, my one happy, wholesome thing I loved. Just die. And and that's super painful. I mean I mean it's it's super painful. I, I, I know the way people feel with with Star Wars when when they you know, when they saw the prequels and they saw Jar Jar flip flop out, you know, with his stupid Gungan face and they, they he started talking and they said, This is the new normal and that you know, resonated in their head. I I know how that feels to watch what you love die a little bit or be changed and the worst part of it is not what they did, but the, the worst part of it is the aftermath where people accept that as the new normal. Oh, well, it's, it's this way now, and it's better. And I think every grognard's had to do this, has, has had to go through this, where the times change and leave them in the past. You know, D&D 4th Edition was like that for many people. Um, Star Trek Discovery is like that for many people. The Star Wars prequels, or even the new ones, are like that for many people. I think it's a lot more common in nerddom. Um, but also I have a fear with Space Station 13 that sooner or later Beyond is going to die as a service and that putting all this extra strain on it may just encourage that to implode all the sooner. But I'm trying to remain hopeful, trying to change my headspace and trying to be a little more uh, positive-minded. Um... It's it's one of those things where I realize that maybe maybe some of these people coming in are going to be inspired by this. Maybe they're going to be inspired to create the new next best thing. And I don't mean something like Stationeers, which I, I don't know. That's like, what, 16-ish people? But... I don't know, that, that guy tried to convince everyone that he played Space Station 13, but no one ever remembered him doing that. But it's the guy who created Daisy, so shrug, I, I don't know him. But, um, I mean, a proper replacement of Space Station 13 could come out of this because of these new people who come in. And I'm, I'm trying to be positive of it because there are some stuff that's starting to get more attention and traction because of this new wave, not in spite of it. But because of it, new people coming in, sharing interest and saying, wow, this is an ancient engine that sucks. What if we did something new that could replicate all this? And the perpetual stew that is Space Station 13, um, being as wild as it is over time, you, you find new things added into it over time in the code base. You find new things added in over time here and there or half deleted or rewritten that would be very hard to replicate from the ground up. But... If enough of the community did move into it, it could be done, maybe. So, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, SS-14, um, Unity Station, SS-3D, any of those could be the next Space Station 13. So, this new wave kind of encourages that. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I am trying to remain positive of it. But, again, keep in mind, this is just... My opinion. God, I rambled for a long time on that. Uh, second question, favorite whiskey. Uh, scotch would be the McAllen's cast strength, which is not made anymore. It's about $500 to $800 a bottle now because it's not made anymore. Um, why they stopped making that is I have no fucking idea. That was a perfect scotch. It was uh, aged in Madeira barrels, and it, it tasted like heaven. Um favorite American is probably Pappy Van Winkle's 12-year Lotby Reserve, um, which is godly, but again, hard to find. Hipsters ruined it. Hipsters started buying whiskey, but not drinking it. They, they just started buying it and going to auctions and buying it to have it, just to put it on a shelf and say, look, I've got the rare shit. So Pappy Van Winkle's used to be like 60 to $80 a bottle, and now it's like 2000 which is ridiculous. But uh, Pappy Van Winkle is my favorite uh, favorite bourbon, period. It's the best bourbon in the world. I, I don't care what you say. You, you can't change my mind. I've, I've drank every Pappy Van Winkles there is, and even years after the fact, I, I can remember the taste clearly. Um, Anonymous writes, What's so hard to get into BPL Discord? You mentioned you don't even run it. What's that all about what gives? 
okay, um, to kind of put this in perspective, I didn't create the BPL Discord. Uh, a guy did for me. And then I appointed the first mod staff. And then after that, I let the mods choose the mods and I don't interfere in their affairs often at all. Um, I have the power to do so, but that's not my job. My job is to make content and I respect their decisions and I respect what they do. So I try not to uh, run their lives. They're volunteering their time to help run the community and build a good community, which they have. I mean, our Discord's fucking great. There's always something fun going on. We've got a lot of fun personalities in there, and we do have a lot of fun. I mean, shit, there's like 10 tabletop games running at any given time in the BPL Discord. Um, almost every night of the week, we have people playing everything from, you know, Forged Alliance to Homeworld, uh, you know, shooters to Call of Duty to Arma. I mean, all this is being run at any given time. Like 24-7, there's something going on, but we want to protect that. And the issue is, is if you have an open invite Discord, um, you end up getting all the wrong people. And by wrong people, I, I don't mean to say that, you know, there's like Untermenschen that must be excluded or something terrible like that. What, what I mean to say is that you, you end up with a lot of these like 12, 14 year old kids who react with everything in emotes and they're just edgy teens and they don't appreciate uh, intelligent conversation. Um, you end up with a lot of people as well on the other end, which I like to call tumblerinas, which we also exclude. We, we don't care um, much about what you believe in so long as that's, that you're a good person. We, we just care that you're honest and decent. So w one of the things that I, I think is kind of funny is, you know, we're incredibly diverse in the Legion. We've got people from every religious group. We got people who are trans, people who are gay, people who are straight, people who are asexual. We got everything. And nobody even talks about any of that shit. Um, we don't even talk about politics or in, in anything like that. We just talk about games and shit posting and laughing and having fun. And that's the reason why we've done things the way we've done. It's hard to get in. Um, and the reason we're very selective on that is we don't want to waste your time because if you get in and find out maybe it's not the right community for you, you've done all that effort for no reason and you won't have a good time and it would sour your experience of it. So why, why, you know, why waste your time? Um, and if, if you aren't a good fit for a community, that's not a good feeling. So they exclude people who don't get in. Um, and that's not to say you can't reapply if you want, but, you know, there's no guarantee of entry into the Black Pants Legion at all. It's just one of those things. And they do ask a lot of questions to try to figure out if you're a good fit for the community, which is largely just everything. Um, the other thing is I, I don't want to run a Discord like many people do because I, I think that that's a huge mistake because there, there are Discords that are run like a, a fan service where... The content creator sits up there, you can't message them, you can't interact with them, or it's a dummy account, they don't respond. And all they do is have an announcement channel and they do an at everyone every 10 seconds to kind of say, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm doing. Well, I've got a YouTube community page and I've got a Patreon. I can communicate with people. Um, I, I have those outlets of media to contact with you guys. Um, and I, I also don't like having a community that's all thrown in, but also not really reflective of the person. I, I actually do play games with people in the Black Pants Legion. I've been in several tabletop games and campaigns. All of Star Trek was actually run in the Black Pants Legion, um, or at least part of it was. Then, then Pablo's game was run in the Black Pants Legion. And then, yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of, a lot of stuff going on in there. So... Basically, basically, uh, we, we're a very active community. I am active in the community, but we want to make sure that people are a good fit for the community. So some people hate the mods as like, you know, see them as like the HOA who go around and say, you can't have this, you can't have that, or what have you. But they're trying to see if you're a good fit for this online community. Um, the other part of it is we don't like lurkers. We don't want someone to join just to get that badge to say I made it in and then just never respond or anything. Um, I consider it kind of a cultural cancer, sadly, where people just kind of scroll Instagram or Facebook or 
uh, injure whatever all day, and they consider that a day's work, I think a community needs interaction and it needs you to put some effort into it. So, you know, we purge the lurkers as well from the Black Pants Legion community, which means the people who stay are extremely active and give a lot to the community, you know, creatively and uh, of themselves. And the, the people who just join to lurk don't stay. Also, amusingly enough, uh, the people who come in just to kiss my ass don't stay. The people who come in to say, I love you, Tex, don't stay. Um, because I, I don't know how to react to that. And often often enough, I'm, I'm more interested in trying to be genuine and play games with people than, than to try to say, yes, I wrote the Ameris Civil War, and I, of course, am great at movie making. I mean, that's just, no. Ego is the death of the soul and death of the self. And I've, I've often believed that. So we, we tend to be a weird group. If you don't get in, don't take it personally. Um, the mod staff does what they do. And uh, I trust them. They've earned that trust. And, you know, I, I, am not, I am not going to override them or tell them who to let in, who to throw out, and how to run the Discord that they've governed so well. So I, I hope that answers that question. At any rate, I think I will wrap up this podcast for now. Uh, if you have further questions for the Black Pants Legion uh, podcast, you will write podcast question in the Black Pants Legion at gmail.com and I will get to it. At any rate, stay safe out there, guys. Shit's crazy, but no need to get crazy in response to it. <laughs>